2 Samuel then this evening, 2 Samuel in the chapter 7. Samuel, the chapter 7, we're beginning our reading at the verse 1 of the chapter. The Word of God says, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. It came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt I say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel." And I, and as I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded them, or commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, and I shall sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And in our reading there at the verse 17. Now, it's only taken us a month, but tonight we do finally come to consider the Davidic covenant. And we do so reminding ourselves that that which we consider is an agreement between two parties, all within the bounds of a legal framework. For remember, that has been our consistent definition of a scriptural or a biblical covenant as we've embarked upon this study together. Now, this is the penultimate covenant that we will study, and in my view, it is a crucial one, the reasons being threefold. It's a covenant in which we are reminded once more of the unfailing grace and the love of our God. 
It is also a covenant in which further revelation is given about the coming Savior. And finally then, it is also a covenant which confirms some key truths to us in regards to God's program for the ages and highlights to us the importance of Israel. Now, our studies tonight will be conducted in keeping with the outline we've used each and every time that we've come to a new covenant together. And so, without further ado, let us consider firstly the substance of the covenant. The substance of the covenant. And once again, we ask ourselves this question, what did God covenant to do? What did God covenant to do? Well, notice there in verse 11 that we see that God covenants to make an house. As David knows this urge within him to build the Lord a house, as then Nathan is commanded of God to go and to deliver this message and to establish this covenant with David, then it begins in the end of verse 11, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Come to verse 13 and we see, he shall build an house for my name, but I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here the Lord is saying, not David, but rather his son Solomon, we know, as we can look back with hindsight, he says, Solomon shall build an house for my name, but I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then come to verse 16. We see once more the same theme is repeated. Thine house, thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so here we see that God is covenanting to David that his name, his household, his very throne, his very kingdom would be established forever. Now what did that or indeed does that mean? The first thing we must identify is that all of this is more specific and more amplified than the seed that we saw promised in the Abrahamic covenant. As David now rules over the nation of Israel, that nation that was established as it were as an outcome of the Abrahamic covenant, that which God promised to do to Abram, that which God covenanted to do in the days when he spake unto one of the patriarchal figures of the nation, then we see that David sits over a nation that was established just as God said it would. And so that being the case, and that being accomplished according to God's plan, according to God's Word, we see here a further amplification, a further spotlight, a microscope, as it were, being used to zoom in, focus in on a seed, on a house, on a name. The nation that God promised to Abraham, the nation that we see established in the days of David, well, that nation was 12 tribes. 12 tribes who would grow to be prosperous. 12 tribes who would forever be protected. 12 tribes in the days of Abraham, it was promised that they would also be perpetual. But now we see that God focuses in on a family focuses in on an individual, focuses in on a kingdom. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, note there in the verse 1 that there, there are very prosperous conditions. David is sitting upon the throne in a time whenever the Lord, the Bible tells us, had given him rest round about from all his enemies. 
Now notice there the name of the Lord, all capitalized, reminding us that He is Jehovah, the one who makes covenant, the one who keeps covenant. And so He it was who had given peace to the nation on every hand. And David, as he's sitting upon his throne in these days, well, he surveys his lot and he ponders this question in his heart. What more may I do for the Lord? Remarking upon God's goodness to him, dwelling in the peace afforded due to God's goodness to the nation, David asks the question, what more may I do for the Lord? Now, that in itself communicates a clear challenge, does it not, to our hearts this evening. For even a simple survey of all that God has blessed us with will mean that we individually and indeed corporately will acknowledge the great deficit in regards to all that God has blessed us with when compared to our service in His name. And trust me when I say that this is not me in any way passing judgment in anyone's service here, nor indeed is it an attempt to emotionally blackmail or coerce anyone to more work, more activity, or more service. Rather, it is but the stating of an unavoidable fact. It's a reminder of what must be the ever-present attitude of every believer that there should be in us all a desire to be about the Master's service, a desire to repay that great debt of love that we owe. And surely as we survey our lives, as we behold that which God has blessed us with, surely our heart's cry is that God would give us the attitude of the little maid in Naaman's house, ever ready to speak a word in season for the Lord. Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet, she said. Oh, would God give us the desire of Jacob who said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Would he give us that desire to wrestle with him, hold on to him in prayer, continually seek his face until that blessing is known. May God give us that resolve of Moses who said, If thy presence go not with me, then carry us up not hence. May God give us the honesty of the father of the boy with the dumb spirit who cried out, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. May God give us the boldness of Caleb who as an old man said, Now therefore give me this mountain, if so be that the Lord will be with me. May God give us a desire to do more that matters for eternity. Because this is where this chapter begins. This is where this whole account begins. As David sits upon the throne that God had appointed him to, as he's now ruling over the people that God had given him responsibility and charge for, he surveys all that God has done for him. He acknowledges the peace that God has granted to him and to the nation. And in his heart, he ponders this question, what more can I do for the Lord? He's motivated by what he knows that God has done for him. He surely is also acknowledging and recognizing the disparity that's between his dwelling place and the dwelling place of the presence of God among the people, namely being, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. 
So we see him here at the beginning of this account purposing in his heart to build a dwelling place that's suitable for that ark. We know that Nathan initially says, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. But nevertheless, as the night passes, the Lord comes to Nathan and asks him to go and to deliver another message, a message that this time comes from the Lord himself and communicates the Lord's will in this matter to David through Nathan. That message simply tells David that God's desire was not for David to build him a house. Rather, a house would be built in days to come. It would be a work undertaken by the man who would next sit upon the throne. But God was rather going to make David a house. David desired to do for the Lord that which would only be ever temporal, the building of a physical structure on earth. But here God reveals that what he desired to do for David was everlasting. David desired to build a house, but God promised to David a dynasty. The second provision that we see in this covenant is simply that Solomon's kingdom would be established immediately after David's death. It would be Solomon then who would have that responsibility of building the physical house, the temple that David had upon his heart and had uh, thought about in his mind. Look in verse 12 and 13, When thy days be in David's be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is reminding David that after he departs this scene of time, that God already has a succession plan in place. That unlike the days whenever David assumed the throne, days whenever uh, the days that we looked into last week as we beheld the strife that emerged between the northern part of the kingdom in that time and the southern part, those who were followers of the household of Saul, those who were loyal even to David. And God is reminding David that as he departs this scene of time, that none of that will be in existence. Rather, a clear succession plan will be in place, and Solomon will assume the throne upon which David sits, all according to the will of God. And it would be Solomon then who constructs the temple. Solomon then who puts the men of that nation to work, the skills craftsmen to work, in creating that place that would be suitable and befitting to house the Ark of the Covenant. That whole event surely proves the point of the proverb which states to us that a man's heart deviseth his ways, but the Lord directeth his steps. David, at the beginning of the passage, comes up with a plan, but God, in the middle of the passage, comes to David and says, not according to my plan. And so tonight, believer, are you here tonight and know what it is to be frustrated in the plans that you've made? Do you have questions as to whether the course of action you're currently upon, is that according to the will of God? Well, this passage reminds us to despair not if God is telling you to wait. Despair not if God is frustrating your plans because they are outside of His plans. Remember that His ways are past finding out. 
Remember that his plan is perfect. Remember that his will is always designed for our good and his eternal glory. And yes, in your heart, devise a way, no doubt about it, be ever active in thinking through what more you can do and how more useful in the service of God you can be and what more avenues of service you can explore. But let the Lord direct your steps in everything. The third provision that we see in this covenant is found for us in the verses 14 and 15. And it is a promise that God's favor would forever remain upon David's household. He says in verse 14, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. God reminds David here of the events which overtook Saul. How that stepping outside of God's will, how that disobeying the clear command of God's Word saw the favor of God that once rested upon him removed. And any notion of a future for Saul, or indeed for his family, it was forever gone. And even despite the valiant efforts of Abner that we noted last Tuesday, God had ruled, and his ruling was that Saul would no longer know the presence nor the favor of God with him nor upon him. But not so Solomon. Hindsight allows us to identify that Solomon fell into gross idolatry. As the years would pass, Solomon did indeed sin. And idolatry was, of course, a clear violation of commandments one and two that God had given in the Mosaic law. And some may argue that in doing so, Solomon fell into the sin that's outlined in Scripture as being extremely offensive and indeed repulsive to God. And thus, if that was weighed in the balances of human intellect, it could be argued that Solomon's sin was greater than that of Saul's. Now, it should never be our intention to rank sin. We find no wiggle room in defining one sin more grievous to God than another, because we all have sinned. We all knew what it was to be born in sin. We all knew what it was to sin by choice. And sadly to this day, we all know what it is to do that which is an error against the Word and the will of God. But nevertheless, as we consider all that we know about Solomon in light of what God promises here, Solomon was in the eyes of God guilty. And he was as guilty, as equally guilty as Saul previous to him. And so, as we note not only Solomon's sin in hindsight, we see very clearly that God did exactly what He promises to do in verses 14 and 15. Judgment came upon Solomon's house. Judgment came upon the kingdom that he left. And judgment came at the hands of men. Division arose. The kingdom split. 
And very soon those divided kingdoms departed from God, departed from the truth of his word, and judgment arrived at the door just as God said it would. And so God in those times permitted the hands of men, namely the men of Assyria, the Chaldeans, the Amorites, the Babylonians, even the Philistines, all to inflict pain, all to inflict suffering upon his people. But notice verse 15. The loving kindness, the mercy of their loving heavenly Father was forever known. Because despite that being true, if he commit iniquity, verse 14, he did commit iniquity. Then I will chasten him. God did chasten him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the children of men. God did exactly what he promised to do, but also God did exactly what he then further covenanted to do in the verse 15. For even in days of suffering, days whenever God's hand of discipline was very evident upon them, he did not depart away from them, but rather his presence was with them and his will was still being fulfilled even in their lives. And all of their discipline, all of their punishment, remember, was being meted out. Why? To validate the holy character of God was being meted out to confirm that he was the one in control. Cast your mind back to a few weeks ago and I shared the shocking revelation that very often as a child I knew what it was to be disciplined. And as hard as that may be to rationale right now as you know me to be your pastor and standing before you week after week, nevertheless, I commonly heard that old chestnut, this hurts me more than ever will hurt you. And I struggled with it. I couldn't understand it. But do you know that that saying is a true saying? Do you know why? Because as I stand on this side of it, as I stand now as a father, I realize the truth of that statement more and more in my life. Because the heart of a father is always filled with love toward his children. And at all times, he desires to do that which is good, that which is best for them. And yes, in times whenever discipline must be meted out, hurt, pain, and sorrow are evident in the heart of the father. Yes, discipline, just as God has said it would here and in other passages that we're going to come to, it causes that suffering in a moment. But it's all done with the goal of effecting long-term change. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, the Bible tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he received. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had our fathers of our flesh, which correcteth us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward 
it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Suffering comes in the moment, but long-term change, long-term blessing is the proper and desired outcome of discipline. Proverbs 3 and verse 11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Psalm 94 and verse 12, Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. And so even here in this passage, we see revealed by Almighty God that whenever discipline enters into the child of God, and whenever we know what it is to live under the hand of discipline, it still is a blessing, a blessing which even in the times that God is alluding to here in the nation that of Israel as a new kingdom after kingdom, as a new king after king to sit on the throne, then he was reminding them that through it all, there was hope. Yes, many of their days were spent in foreign lands. Many of their days were filled with tears and sorrow. But God wasn't finished with them. God had a plan for them. God desired that they might walk worthy of their being called by His name. There's also a fourth provision that's given to us in in this covenant. And for that, we come to 1 Chronicles in the chapter 17. In this passage, we see a rehearsal of all that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel in the chapter 7. But coming to 1 Chronicles in the chapter 17, we note that this final provision of the covenant that's termed the Davidic covenant is all connected to the coming Messiah. Read with me from the verse 11. It shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words, according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Here in this passage, we see amplified for us the promise of he who would come. And this seed that has been spoken of here is not the primary focus of it, the primary emphasis of it is not Solomon. The the seed that is spoken of here is the Savior. He it was who would be born in the fullness of times. He it was who would be born of the tribe of Judah, the family and of the lineage of David. And God goes on here in this passage to shed more light on the coming Messiah. For he it was who would reign on David's throne. He it was who would be forever the head of David's house and exercise his rule and his reign over David's kingdom. And so in 2 Samuel, we see a focus on Solomon, one who knew great promises, but one who came to great sin. But here in 2, but also then he saw the unfailing commitments of God to deal with that sin, the provision that God made for that sin, and how that grace and mercy would be extended as sin was punished. 
But here in 1 Chronicles, we know to focus on the Messiah. And all that this account highlights and records centers upon him. And note that no mention of sin is made in this passage. For in him no sin was found, nor shall ever be known. And so the Davidic covenant, the substance of the Davidic covenant, what does it teach us? Well, it teaches us four things. A dynasty. Solomon would automatically assume the throne and be charged with building and, uh, and constructing that great temple of the Lord. And yes, then, even in days whenever uh, Solomon would then come to sin and the nation would continue in sin, God's grace and God's mercy would be evident. And then the final provision was a further understanding of who Messiah was and what Messiah would do. So we've looked at the substance of the covenant. Let's notice, secondly, the stipulations in the covenant. What had to be done in order for this to be fulfilled? What was the requirements that God placed upon the nation so that all of this would come to pass? And the answer, once again, is none. Even Solomon's sin did not set aside the commitments that were made. My firm conviction is that despite many generations having passed, the commitments of God still remain, and the promises of God will be fulfilled. Alive and well today are Jewish men and women who find their place in the direct descendants of David. Some might say that is far-fetched or fantasy thinking. But my Bible tells me that God's ways are not my ways. And surely we all can agree that if it was possible, if you would argue that it wasn't possible, well, if it was possible, it's only within God's gift to grant it. And so I, for one, am willing to take him at his word and believe then that the descendants of the house of David are alive and well to this very day. Nevertheless, we continue and we think not only of the substance of the covenant, the stipulations in the covenant, but number three, the solace from the covenant. Now, in this point, we always seek to communicate the comfort that the covenant has within even its framework. And that comfort is expressed then as the Word of God, but it comes to us afresh in a new generation and helps us to understand the unfailing purposes of God. And whilst this covenant, this Davidic covenant, may be specific to the nation of Israel, specific to the house of David, nevertheless, just like every other Bible covenant, it communicates a clear message of hope and comfort to every child of God in every generation. There are two lessons that we draw from this whenever it comes to the solace or the comfort to be obtained from this covenant. And the first lesson that I wish to draw from this is prophetical in nature. Now, this study in the covenants of Scripture has not been embarked upon with an eschatological emphasis only, but it does contain an end times dimension. 
And so that being the case, we cannot consider this covenant in light of the theological framework that I hold here and not comment upon that which is clear to me and the lessons that God communicates here. And the lesson that I see communicated here in regards to the prophetical nature of God's Word is simply this, Israel is unique among the nations. Here in chapter 7 is very clearly communicated to us just how unique Israel is in the sight of God. God reminds David that his testimony is of of Israel's, uh, 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 is the same as Israel's testimony. How that he can testify just as Israel can testify of God's continual presence. Look there in verse 9, I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest. He could also testify, just as Israel could, of God's provision. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Not only did David testify of God's presence, not only could Israel testify of God's provision, but they could also testify then of God's protection. Read in verse 11, it says, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Presence, provision, protection. But notice as well in verses 8 and 9 that he was a recipient of, just as Israel was, the divine promises of God. Look in verse 8, Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are on earth. So God reminds David. He communicates through his servant Nathan, and this could be shared with all the nation. That history up until this point in 2 Samuel in chapter 7 is marked by divine presence, divine provision, divine protection, divine promises. That which began with the promise of a mighty nation, that which began with the promise of a land possession, has now been partially realized here in the days of David. No nation on earth can testify of what Israel can testify of. And surely it's true to say that if the UN today would cease making puny and vindictive resolutions and simply clear a space on the floor of their house to hear a testimony of how God has blessed the nation of Israel down through the generations, then they would hear a tale unlike any other tale which could be shared by any other nation. Let me be clear tonight. That tale would be told not because Israel is in any way better than Britain. It wouldn't be told because Israel is more deserving than Iran. It wouldn't be told because Israel is more upstanding than Thailand. But Israel is that nation whom God and His providence has sovereignly elected and chosen to display his unfailing love and faithfulness in the face of human failure. And in this one nation, 
He has chosen to reveal himself consistently to be and everlastingly to be a faithful covenant-keeping God. And so, moving on from the days of David, and we see that Israel have remained a unique nation. They still remain a unique nation. You might ask, well, how is this so? They're unique in our generation because of their perpetuity. A report that was commissioned for none other than the UN in 1998 was assessed by a pool of Western journalists. An American journalist made this assessment. No nation on earth can say what Israel says. For no nation on earth dwells in the same land, has the same name, worships the same God, and speaks the same language as did their historical forefathers 3,000 years ago. None. And should we be surprised? This all is but the fulfillment of what was covenanted to Abraham, a nation exceeding the very stars of heaven, perpetual in nature. Israel by name. And this is something that's testified of in 2 Samuel in chapter 7 and verse 24. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thy Lord art become their God. They are unique because of their perpetuity. But they're also unique because of the persecution that they have faced. This persecution is spoken of here in the verse 10. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And you and I only have to take a very brief survey of history that proves the veracity and the authenticity of that claim. In every generation since Solomon, Israel has been persecuted inside and outside the land. Now, you may say tonight they're a nation who backslid, a nation who rejected Messiah, a nation who remain in unbelief. Of that, there is no doubt. But they are also a nation who have been on the receiving end of a sustained and merciless campaign by Satan himself. In modern-day history, after the ascension of Christ, we see how that empire after empire, government after government, attack and war against Israel. The Roman Empire under Hadrian, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Turk Empire, the British Empire, the Hungarian Empire, the French Empire, the Nazis, the Soviets, even modern-day globalists, all have excluded, banished, attacked, and persecuted Israel. And remember, because of all that Israel has faced and continue to face, in 1879, a phrase was coined to describe the actions of governments or individuals that specifically target Jewish people, and that term is anti-Semitism. And 15 headlines in the last week in the British press have been concerning anti-Semitism. 
They are unique because of their irrational and unforgivable persecution they have faced and continue to face. And all of this finds a mention here in the Davidic covenant. But they're also unique according to this covenant because they have been planted. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Undoubtedly, dispersion was known in the days following the ascension of Christ. But God in His mercy and grace and in His fulfillment of His Word enacted a regathering unlike anything known before or known again. On May the 14th, 1948, God planted His people back in their land. And this was all after being exiled over and over again. But not again. Because from that day until the day that Christ assumes the throne of David, until the day whenever he shall exercise rule and reign over all the land that's promised, Israel is going nowhere. They shall no more move, but rather they shall dwell in a place of their own. Miraculous protection is their right. It will be their reality, no matter the continued persecution, no matter what will come, even in days ahead that will seek relentless persecution. But Israel are unique because they've been planted. Look in verse 23. What one nation on earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, to make him a name, to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever." So the first lesson that we draw from this covenant that provides comfort in our modern-day generation is Israel is unique. Israel holds a very important place in the plan of God. But there is a second lesson that we draw from this covenant, and it all centers upon God's words to David through Nathan. Look in verse 7. God says through Nathan, In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes to Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye me not an house? God here reminds David that he has been with his people every day since the day he redeemed them out of Egypt. Look in verse 8. Now therefore so shalt I say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. He reminds David that he will always and has always fulfilled his purposes and plans. And look in verse 9. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men 
that are in the earth. Here God testifies that not only as a nation has Israel known the presence of God, but David as an individual has known God's presence. Indeed, he's known God's protection. He's known God's provision. And so as we consider these verses tonight in light of our own lives and indeed the challenges and the struggles that we come to, I remind you that God's message is exactly the same. For every step that you take, every day that you live, every trial and storm that you experience, every disappointment you arrive at, God is with you. The presence of God never leaves you. Through the times when you're weary and all the struggling and all the fighting and all the putting on of a brave face and keeping up appearances have left you absolutely spent, God is with you. Through the times when you're hurting and the words and the actions of others have inflicted wounds that so many do not see, but yet they are grievous to you. Wounds which take an eternity to heal. Wounds which perhaps time will never heal. God is with you. Through the times whenever days are tough, whenever the nights are excruciating, as memories flood in, as anxieties take hold, as loneliness is real and unbearable, God is with you. Through the times whenever the future offers no hope, brings no excitement, when clouds obscure your view of the sun, when the very thought of going on is the last thing you want to do or feel that you can. Remember, God says, I am with thee, whithersoever thou goest. I will never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. And know too tonight that from the day that you were redeemed, God says you have been someone whom I have known by name. According to my purposes and my plans, you too will be born on eagles' wings. As I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. John Newton put it this way, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. To Abraham, God said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And that is still true for you. It's still true for me today. And so just like David, we must take God at his word. And we, say, we must say like he did in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God? And then as he continues in verse 22, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. 
Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 26, let thy name be magnified forever. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true. Believer, tonight, do you feel all alone? Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel overwhelmed? The words of God to David ring true in your heart tonight. I have been and I continue to be with you whithersoever thou goest. So tonight we can be steadfast in our belief, steadfast in our belief in the truth of his words, steadfast in our belief in the unfailing nature of his character, steadfast in our belief in the unflinching resolve that he has to fulfill his purposes, steadfast in our belief for the unabating display of his faithfulness, grace, and mercy each and every day, steadfast in our belief of the unmistakable evidence of his abiding presence and the unceasing and the unchanging reality that our God is a covenant-keeping God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless His Word to our hearts tonight.